Well, chances are, if you are celebrating the holidays, you've done some shopping, perhaps a bit more shopping this time of year than you would generally do. So have you changed anything about the way you purchase goods, how you look for goods, anything like that? If so, you are not alone. We are seeing our uh, habits change a little bit, and uh, that's okay. We, we change, we grow, we evolve. But what exactly has changed and what does the future look like when we talk about shopping and retail? Well, David Ian Gray joins me on the line now. He is the founder of, uh, I'm going to say it wrong, is it, it's either, uh, is it DIG360 or DIG360? Uh, Dig 360. That's what I thought. All right. I was having a bit of a mind pause there for a second. Uh, David Ian Gray is the founder of that, a national retail advisory firm based here in Vancouver. Thanks so much for being with us this morning. Oh, no worries. Uh, so this is an annual report that has been put out by, uh, by your company. What are we looking at as far as uh, when we're talking about shopping? Uh, we hear the terms Black Friday, Cyber Monday, bandied about. What, is, what did the report look at? Yeah, we've been tracking um, Black Friday, particularly Black Friday, but we look at Boxing Day and Holiday as well. But we've been looking at that since about 2010 because, um, I mean, it's really a crazy thing in Canada. We we have Boxing Day, right? A, a British tradition uh, that clears inventory after after we do all our gift giving, and we we just sort of adopted this U.S. Uh, practice. Who does not have Boxing Day, of course? Um, but we started doing Black Friday, and um, we just wanted to see. There's a lot of mythology around this back in the day, and back in 2010, a lot of people were saying uh, everyone and their cousin was cross-border shopping. That was the, the big myth back then. So we wanted to track, and we partnered with our a really great research group out of Montreal called Leger, and we look at um, we go out right after Cyber Monday's done, so we we know exactly what's happened. I think the biggest change, you know, over that time is that, you know, we start with Black Friday that people may have heard about a little bit watching the U.S. reels. And over time, uh, we've seen it really entrenched in Canada. And it, it sort of has bled um, sales out of Boxing Day over that time. And now, now they're almost on a par this year. And and does the report look at, or what do you think about? Is it what, who led that? Was it stores getting on board Black Friday and people understanding? Oh, the deals are already here. I don't have to wait till Boxing Day. Or was it shoppers, consumers that were pushing for that? No, this is a re- a lot of retail leaders we talk to. They just think they hate it. Really, <laughs> it became a monster. What happened was. Uh, in the recession that predominantly hit the U.S. in in oh eight oh nine, but Canada as well, but it was really uh, bad down there. Um, the parent companies of of U.S. chains, you know, that were operating in Canada, like Sears Canada back then or Toys R Us, uh, they just got instructed: you're going to run Black Friday sales. They just needed to to sell, and uh, once a few of them did it for a couple of years, um, others started feeling, well, we have to compete. We're going to have to match it. And the industry got quite excited about it. They said, okay, well, we can really drive a lot of uh, excitement before the holiday begins, you know, really kick off the season and and introduce it. Um, But uh, as one uh, CEO was saying to me, he said, it'd be like, um, you know, hotels going on deep, deep room discounts 
during the heavy convention period. You know, why are we doing, why are we, why are we going so deep on discounts? But it's great for the shoppers, um, you know, because there's deals all the time. Absolutely. And I think, yeah, consumers love it and think that. But are they actually getting the deals? Because I, that, I've often wondered that in that we, consumers obviously want the deals and love deals. But are we getting the deals or is it a way that stores are able to, to bring people in? But because they still have to make money, too. Well, yes. And uh, again, tracking this um, has been fascinating because. We've seen a bit of a plateau in terms, let's go back a step, the, the percentage of Canadians who participate, and by that, you know, you're browsing for deals, you're buying deals, is really been sticking around the, the 50 to 55% mark for, for a few years now. And that means a lot of Canadians don't like that hype. And we find it kind of matches Boxing Day as well. Like, not everyone likes to... Um, you know, get caught up in the promotional frenzy. So let's just start with that. Not everyone is the same as shoppers go, you know, but there's those, and it tends to be younger. You know, it's like a, it's like a sport the the bargain hunter type people um, really are professional at it, if you want to call it that. So they're, they're very savvy. And uh, we found that over the last few years, their rating of the quality of deals, like how good those promotions are, has been dropping each year. So to your point, um, you know, the shoppers are becoming more cynical, and I think rightly so, because I think the the retailers are trying not to do across the board, you know, deep discounts early in November. It's just not good for their business. So they're, they've got a few door crashers, and they're, they're kind of doing a few things, but you're, you're right. And basically, uh, you know, trying try to remember the number exactly, but it was a, it was about a third of, of Canadians reported they were postponing some major purchases through November. And by the way, Black Friday, let's call that uh, Black Friday month. You know, it's it's all month long. But if people are watching online, offline, they're they're finding their deal when it happens at some point during the season. Right. And I remember even hearing people say that, too, a few years ago when Boxing Day was still the the shopping day and we would see people lined up places to get to the door crashers or to get the sales. Uh, I remember seeing stories of people saying, well, wait a minute, Boxing Day sales. Uh, In some cases, they'd seen products that had actually been cheaper before Christmas and didn't feel like the discounts were really Mm -hmm. the biggest discounts on Boxing Day. Yeah. And you know, I, I think as a shopper, um, uh, you, you're just you're looking for the best you can get for yourself. But we also see people lament when certain retailers go out of business, which has been happening almost every February for the last decade. There's new announcements, um, you know, and often it's it, it, it's been the U.S. chains, but in Canada as well, that have closed shop and. I think one of the signals is if you're seeing deep, deep, deep discounts on every product, what that means is uh, that retailer has bought way too much inventory and they're having to clear all of it out desperately. And that's usually a bad sign. And, um, you know, they they could be in trouble. So there's a bit of a dance that goes on for sure. 
Absolutely. Um, yesterday, I happened to be covering a story uh, with Global. I drove by the Amazon warehouse in Tawasin, which is this huge, sprawling site. What about Amazon? Because a lot of people are certainly using that. We've done stories about porch pirates, packages being stolen. But clearly, this is a big player. How has that changed things? Well, the, our Dig360 Leger report this year, for the first time, has begun to track uh, Amazon. Um, because we've we've just known anecdotally there's an impact happening, and uh, we were really um, kind of blown away uh, when we discovered that about 15% of all Canadians um, had had made at least one Amazon purchase during the Black Friday period, and um, it, it, it it's called the Amazon effect, but it's it's tremendous, and if it's not people buying they're at least uh, referencing pricing by looking at what Amazon's selling a given product for. So, um, yeah, I, Amazon is, is, uh, is massive and it's continuing to grow. And it's really, uh, you, we hear about it all year round about how it's really been one of the big disruptors of, um, of retail. And when you mentioned earlier, too, that every year we see certain stores going out of business, do you think a big reason for that is Amazon? You know what? I, I I'll point to Amazon as saying that's uh, a focal point of disruption. But I think there's a Costco's never been better. So I'll start with that. You know, uh, Costco's a tremendous retail chain, never been better. And I think way I think what's going on is the notion of retail is fundamentally changing. With Amazon being this crazy example of a storeless provider that sells everything and and is really a shipping company um the rest of retail that's been around for decades is having to to fundamentally change what it is and how it does things and i think the challenge is really in in many cases it's almost impossible if the culture and the systems that have been built are so entrenched uh the change is slow it's just not morphing fast enough. But there's a lot of really great retail. In fact, Amazon's buying physical stores. And I think at the, I'll give you an example that's relevant to, to this discussion is uh, we also know um, about half of Canadians are really concerned leading up to, uh, to the gift-giving deadline, which is a hard deadline uh, of, their, of their orders, even through Amazon arriving on time or accurately. Uh, packaged and so there's a turn back to stores that's been happening for the last few days uh, where stores are still the best way to go because you uh, and if your listeners listen to um, I guess winners and Marshalls doesn't add talking about this new concept called offline shopping <laughs> tongue-in-cheek there, there's still a very important place for stores but it's making it all work together is the challenge and it's been hard for a lot of retailers to adapt Right. And what about the, the local, the independent stores where I think there's still that, that committed clientele, people that will always shop there, but how do they stay alive and make sure that they can compete? Well, that's really, that's, that's the hard one through all this, because it's not just being able to match the, uh, the, the discounting. It's even uh, capturing people's attention through all the noise, uh, the promotional noise, you know, the, the emails and the and the ads and the flyers, um, it's really tough for them this time of year. And 
we we really see a dip in Canadians. I'm going to say I think all people want to really support local, but it's it's the kind of time of year where you're uh, you're doing it where you can when you can, but they can't uh, they can't compete head on and they shouldn't you know so we're we're finding uh, them sort of between a rock and a hard place. They can't match on price and they can't really get get the attention. But I think the key for the for those retailers is not even play the game. Just make sure they're doing a whole lot of value add really well, helping people find product. Right. And I guess that's that's kind of what what you have to do moving into we're going into a new year and to, to not only stay relevant, but to stay in business. Yeah. And that's it. And, you know, there's sometimes the sale comes at such a cost, especially for an independent retailer, that you're actually losing money when you when you count, you know, your your staff costs and your, your, your rent and all those things. So it's, it's finding your niche as an independent and just let's keep selling things. And remember, I said there's about half of Canadians who don't like all the hype, but they still need to get things. So everyday items, even if it's not for, uh, for gift giving. Absolutely. Um, one final question. Do you have, if you had one prediction for 2020, what would you say as far as retail and, and what might unfold in the coming year? Well, this has been a tough year. Um, this has been one of the harder years in Canadian retail, um, and, and that's after a lot of discussion of hard years. Uh, really, sales have not grown, and there's a lot of uncertainty, especially in Western Canada. You know, in, in BC, we've had a lot of job loss in the forestry sector. Uh, Alberta, prairies are going through a lot of um, hard times. So it it's... Uh, I think the next year is going to be about really weathering uh, a bit of a storm. And we still feel that there's a great opportunity for physical reach. I I don't think stores are ever going to go away, but uh, the change that has to happen for those stores to be relevant is accelerating. The the pressure to change is accelerating. And I think we're going to see some more go out of business uh, this February and, and, uh, but we're seeing a lot of new things taking their place. And there's a lot of new brands out there in clothing and shoes and housewares and gadgets that are starting up and are selling directly to the consumers and starting to open up stores. And it's just a change. And, and we're going to see it continue. All right. Uh, we will leave it there. Uh, David Ian Gray, thank you so much for joining us this morning. You're welcome. Well, we are one step closer to a new Canada Line station at Richmond's Capstan Way after the city transferred a few million dollars to TransLink and a funding agreement was, there was a funding agreement signed that has to do with TransLink, the city, as well as the developer in this case. So let's bring in Michael Geller to talk more about this. Michael Geller is an architect, an adjunct professor at the SFU Centre for Sustainable Development, many other titles. Michael, thank you so much for being with us. Uh, good morning. Uh, pleased to be here. Thank you so much. Uh, talk a little bit about this in that we don't often see new stations added to existing transit lines, but this is something that is going to be going ahead. What makes this one unique? Well, I think what makes it unique is that it's being financed in large part by developers who've been building condominiums and rental buildings around the station. And as you say, while we don't often see new stations being added, it's taken a long time before we even got rapid transit in uh, Vancouver compared to most other 
Canadian and international cities. So I think we can expect to see this happening more and more in the future. There is another station that was planned at 57th and Canby. And while it looks questionable at the moment, one day hopefully that will happen as well. But the way this was financed, Jill, is that the municipality collected what they call voluntary contributions from the developers, which of course are not voluntary at all, but the developers got approval to build larger buildings in return for giving money, which in turn was used to pay for this forthcoming station. And uh, and going forward, then, is there any concern, do you think, though, that uh, when we say voluntary contributions, that, that there will be a way the developers will still make up that money, whether it's in the price of the units or some way that people uh, getting into these units will end up uh, paying more, will, will end up actually paying for it? I don't think you should necessarily assume that the people buying these condominiums will be paying more. Just, I mean, they will be paying more just by virtue of the fact that they'll be living near a transit station and land around these transit stations in Vancouver and elsewhere in the world is generally worth more. But developers did get approval to add quite a few floors to these buildings or make them larger. Um, and, and so they are able to spread the cost that they contributed to the municipality over a larger number of apartments. Because And we've seen uh, in the past as well developers paying uh, for amenities like parks or, or, uh, and green spaces. So is this kind of following that same formula? Exactly. In fact, there was a time when really the only thing that developers contributed to was the cost of parks and occasionally new roads. Um, the, these are what we call community amenity contributions. And I think it's a sound approach that if developers are building new homes, Uh, municipalities don't want the existing taxpayers to have to pay for the cost of all the new amenities. And so the developers are required to make the payments. And there's no doubt that these community amenity contributions in general do add to the cost of housing. I don't want to suggest otherwise. But we're beginning to, to become accustomed to this. And certainly I think many of us feel that contributing to transit at least that's a direct benefit for the people who will be moving into these new homes. Uh, oftentimes, in some municipalities now, you're also contribute. the developers are being asked to contribute to the cost of building affordable housing. And I must say that while developers reluctantly agree to this, uh, they don't necessarily see the same direct benefit that they do when something like the Capstan Station is built. Right. You mentioned as well a possible uh, Station 57th and Canby. Do you think that there will be opportunity? Because uh, 16th and Canby is also one that comes up uh, as being underserviced when it comes to Canada Line or Transit. Do you think there will be other opportunities to perhaps add stations in the future? Oh, I think so. Because again, uh, I, I grew up in Toronto and I remember in the 1950s when the subway line opened there. That shows you uh, my perspective. And so We've waited a long time to start building, but we are building. And while you can question, you know, I mean, that, that 57th and Canby station really should have gone in at the beginning, in my opinion, uh, because there's a lot of development going on around it. But over, over time, I mean, again, we're, we're talking 50, 100 years from now, they'll be adding stations because uh, the transportation is going to be very different then. I mean, this is the time of year where many of us think about shopping. Um, it's not inconceivable that uh, within our lifetimes, people will be shopping for cars that drive themselves 
or they'll be not even shopping for a car because they'll become so accustomed to using public transit. The idea of owning a car, which they use, you know, fraction amount of the time will seem absurd. And even in this particular case to the Capstan Way station, uh, the estimates are about 6,000 residential units being built around there. I mean, that's a fair number of units. If you look at how many people that could be, that would all, not maybe not all, but the, where a lot, a good percentage of them would be using the station. That's right. And I must confess, when they first approved, many of the people listening to us now will remember this infamous RAV line, you know, the rich port. <laughs> Richmond Airport line had quite a controversial history, and many people questioned whether it would even be built. Unfortunately, federal government came along and helped make it happen. But I must admit, I questioned when it was first approved whether or not it really would be that busy. I mean, would all these people from Richmond, of all places, really be using public transit? Well, I was completely wrong. And indeed, if anything, the line is over capacity. The stations are too small. Uh, the platforms are too small. We made a lot of mistakes. Uh, and indeed, adding this new station and adding all of the housing that you see in Richmond is making Vancouver a much more transit-oriented city. And I think that's a very good thing. Absolutely. And you raise an interesting point, though, with it already being over capacity. Is that going to cause problems, though, in the future? If we're building more stations, more people are going to be using it. How do you deal with the fact that it's already over capacity? The way you deal with it is by increasing the frequency of trains. So in other words, instead of waiting two minutes for a train, you wait one minute for a train and you just hope that everybody gets in and out of the station before the next train arrives. But that really is the only way they can do it now. I mean, maybe again in the longer term future, they may extend the size of platforms, but I don't expect that. You can also increase the length of trains to some degree. You could add one more car and so forth. But no, it'll be frequency that is the way to increase capacity. All right. Just before I let you go, I wanted to ask you as well, and I, I thought of this just reading that number of the 6,000 residential units. Uh, similar as well, the Sinac uh, development. What do you think about that, the proposal uh, for uh, the end of the Burrard Bridge and the fact that it doesn't have to go through a lot of the red tape, a lot of the hoops and that that other developments would? What are your thoughts on what's being proposed to the 11 you towers know, for there? I have a lot of thoughts on that, but unfortunately I've decided not to speak uh, publicly about it because I just have too many conflicts of interest. <laughs> okay. uh, to be honest, I did a study for the Squamish Nation many years ago on that property. Um, the developer who's partnering, and again, it's very much a uh, developer and the nation working together. I play golf with his lawyer every week, and every time I complain about something he's doing, I get into trouble. Um, but I think people should look carefully at what's being proposed. I just saw, I mean, many people have been commenting on this without actually seeing it. I think in general, we're all collectively pleased to see First Nations developing economic uh, development, which will hopefully benefit the people. And I think that's terrific. But I am troubled, and I think most people are in my profession are troubled with whether or not this is an appropriate scale of development. There, I, I saw yesterday for the first time an image of what it will look like for people driving along the Broad Street Bridge. I mean, it is going to be an extremely dense development. But what I suspect is that over time, that development may well be modified, the scale may be modified, 
I mean, but what is being proposed is certainly very attractive, especially if all of that landscaping, all the greenery that's shown on the buildings is actually built. But before everyone assumes it's going to be built, do think about how do all those plants get watered and maintained? Is somebody going to go through everybody's apartment in order to look after all that landscaping? Or will it, in fact, not appear? And there's no doubt if all of that landscaping shown in the drawings is not a reality, that would change dramatically the appearance of, uh, of those buildings. So there's one, to my mind, very important detail that needs to be looked at, not necessarily by the city, but certainly by the people who are behind uh, the project. But the notion of creating more housing, I think it's a great thing. Personally, I think the scale of that development is, is quite overwhelming, but I expect that it will change over time. All right. We will leave it there, Michael. Always great to chat with you. Thank you so much for being here, and uh, we'll talk to you again soon. I look forward to it. Merry Christmas. Happy Today's the first day of Hanukkah for some of your listeners. So uh, to everybody, Merry Christmas, Happy Hanukkah, Happy Holidays. Well, this is the time of year where people tend to give a little bit more, and we're going to talk about uh, generosity a bit later on in the program. But the Greater Vancouver Food Bank is still in need of volunteers. And joining me on the line to talk a bit more about that is Cynthia Bolter, Chief Operations Officer with the Greater Vancouver Food Bank. Cynthia, thanks so much for being with us. Oh, we appreciate the time. Thank you. What exactly does the food bank need right now? Our biggest need for volunteering right now is within our community food hubs. So we have 13 of them across the four cities we support, being Vancouver itself, the North Shore, New Westminster, and Burnaby. Uh, one of those locations is the permanent market we have set up for our clients in our new warehouse in Burnaby. And the times that we need people um, are between about 8 in the morning and 12.30 or 1 in the afternoon uh, during the week. We serve clients three weeks out of every month, so we are looking for people to help us unload our trucks. They're sort of like pop-up weddings. We show up at a neighborhood house or at a church where we have space regularly, and we unload 6,000 to 15,000 pounds of food. We set up the market. We serve our clients, we chat with them, connect with them, um, and when it's over, then we pack things up, load the truck, and off goes the truck. So we need people who are, you know, in good health and uh, able to lift up to about 50 pounds, ideally. We are looking to change some hours to evenings and expand our hours into evenings and a Saturday starting in the new year. Right now, we have this model where we're open Monday to Friday during the mornings, which honestly doesn't really suit working people that well. But we're working to change it. Right. And if, if you don't have the volunteers, then is it a, a case of the pop-ups just don't happen as often or the hours aren't as much? No, not at all. Uh, even when we moved our warehouse from Vancouver to Burnaby uh, in the summer, we didn't miss a distribution. So uh, what that means is some volunteers volunteer for longer than they normally would, and we supplement with staff. So I was at one of our locations on Friday, for example, where we had a shortage. We always like our staff to regularly volunteer in our locations and be a part of that frontline experience, but we're asking them for more of late, quite a bit more. 
Right. And, and we often talk about the fact that the, the food bank and many charities or many organizations that depend on volunteers and donations, really, this is the time of year where it's people, it's top of mind for a lot of people. And this is what kind of gets you through the other months. So the, the slower times of the year, is that still, is that still kind of how things play out? It is. We take in about 60% of our revenue between October and December, and we are starting to really see the the large uh, monetary gifts in particular roll in. Probably that happens in November, and certainly right now we are seeing many of them. And, uh, and we have some regular annual food drives that happen at this time of year as well, and they're bringing in thousands of pounds of food. I think the warehouse saw I'd say over 20,000 uh, pounds of food come in uh, last Friday. Wow. And how mm-hmm. is, the, is the need growing as well? Unfortunately, it is. Uh, we saw a peak in November. So a year or so ago, maybe close to a year and a half ago, we were serving six to 7,000 people a week in our 13 locations. We also support about 75 community agencies, women's shelters, youth programs, meal programs. Um, and we estimate that we serve about 20,000 people through those programs. But the number that we can really accurately predict are the people we serve directly. That six to 7,000 number is up to 8,500 to 9,000 a week now. And we hit a peak of 10,000 a week in November with 500 new client signups, many of them families. So yes, it's definitely still growing. All right. And uh, you mentioned as well, so for people wanting to volunteer or if people have time, they can volunteer. Uh, You have to be in in good health that that you can lift uh, up to 50 pounds. What Mm -hmm. else do people, do they have to have a criminal record check or what else do people have to do to go through that process to become a volunteer? Yeah, great question. Thank you. So we do provide a, a fantastic orientation at our warehouse in Burnaby and we do require that people go through a criminal record check. They are working with vulnerable populations so yes that is absolutely a part of it Um, and we you know we're looking for people who can uh, dedicate say two to four months of time at one location for us Uh, That is, that would be ideal so that they can learn the routine. They get to know the clients a little bit. The volunteer teams are amazing. People get a lot out of volunteering, whether it's sorting food in our warehouse, helping us out at uh, community events, or helping us out uh, seasonally in the warehouse. We have some volunteers in now, uh, in our office actually, uh, helping us process donations. And certainly the frontline service is very rewarding. So there, um, there is a, a lot for people to take away as part of that experience of giving back. And how many hours a week would you be looking for people? Well, uh, it would be great if they could give us four or five hours uh, in a morning per week. Uh, each location takes about 20 volunteers. So uh, we have a uh, you know, about 260 volunteers a week that we need. Uh, but somewhere in that 8.30 to 12.30, 8.30 or 8 to 12, 8 to 1 p.m. time frame, uh, once a week, and then one week off a month, we, uh, we serve in the communities three weeks out of every four each month. All right. Well, it certainly uh, is is uh, bridging that gap. Or I, I was looking at this as well, and and people might think it, it's just people picking up food, but it sounds like they also get, you know, connections to people and a lot of resources. It's a very uh, important link. 
It is, and uh, the community food hub model is one where we do uh, have space in things like neighborhood houses. So I was at Gordon Neighborhood House, for example, last Friday. Uh, And so these are spaces where there are other programs, and that is absolutely part of our goal. So there um, is a connection with daycare for families. Um, There are programs supporting people getting back to work and working on their resumes and looking for a job. Um, We are also coordinating uh, with some volunteers right now around the possibility of doing taxes for free for our clients in a couple of our locations in the spring. Sometimes we have community health nurses in. So it really is much more about getting food, and and we intend to keep it that way and uh, and expand in that area as well. All right. Uh, Cynthia, we will leave it there. We're right out of time, but thanks so much. And uh, if people hear this and can volunteer, hopefully they get in touch. But thanks so much for your time this morning. Thank you very much. Well, it is the first day of Hanukkah, and Christmas is just a couple of days, uh, three days away. So what better time to take a look at how we celebrate the holidays and how our celebration behavior has perhaps changed over the years? Well, some new research, uh, courtesy of Abacus Data, takes a look at that. And David Coletto, who is the CEO at Abacus Data, joins me on the line now. Thank you so much for being with us. My pleasure, Joe. Good morning. Good morning. These were some fun questions. And I was surprised a little bit by some of the answers. Uh, The greeting seems to be something we talk about every year, Uh, whether people say Merry Christmas, Happy Holidays, Seasons Greetings. Uh, I wasn't surprised by the fact Seasons Greetings came in last. Right. Like only about, you know, 5%, 4% (laughs) say that they are most likely when greeting somebody else around this time of year to say Seasons Greetings. But what we did find was that while Merry Christmas is still by far the most popular, most likely greeting, 62% of Canadians say that that is what they're most likely to do. It's down uh, from when we did this survey seven years ago in 2012. It's down about you know five or six points. So that, that shift is, I think, indicative of um, some of the political correctness that, that I think a growing number of Canadians recognize, uh, the diversity question. Um, and we see it primarily among younger Canadians who are, Still more likely to say Merry Christmas than Happy Holidays, but um, Happy Holidays is um, um, more likely to be used among younger Canadians and older ones. So we, we are seeing a, a slight shift, but, but one in which still Merry Christmas is the dominant uh, <laughs> greeting this time of year. And, and when you say it's down five to six points, did those points go over to Happy Holidays? They did. So Happy Holidays is up. Um, um, again, the question was just between those three, which are you most likely to use, you know, greeting somebody. So Happy Holidays is up. Merry Christmas is down. Uh, but but Merry Christmas still wins pretty, pretty handily over Happy Holidays. All right, which I, I'm sure isn't a huge surprise, because I think even anecdotally, when, when you're out and about, you hear that phrase a lot more than the other ones, for sure. Uh, you also asked people, do you celebrate Christmas? What about the answers there? So we've seen a three-point drop in the percentage of Canadians who say they celebrate Christmas. 87% say they do. So again, almost all Canadians celebrate. But I think what what, what for me is fascinating about this survey, and we'll talk about the follow-up question in a moment, is this is one example. This is how Canadians are celebrating one holiday, and not all Canadians are Christian, and not all Canadians even see Christmas as as a religious holiday. But I think the shifts that we've seen over the last seven years is indicative of the changes we've seen in Canada um, from a demographic perspective. We're becoming more diverse. We've got, we're, we've got Canadians coming from all parts of the world with very different uh, perspectives. And, and so while most people still celebrate Christmas, what's interesting is when we ask those who do, is it primarily a religious holiday to you? Is it a secular holiday? Are you unsure? 
how you would describe it. And here again, we see um, a drop of six points uh, of those who say it's a re- they're celebrating it as a religious holiday. Unsure is up. Um, most people in Canada celebrate Christmas as a secular holiday. And, and there's, that, that shift is continuing to happen. So I think it's reflective of, you know, it, it's interesting, right? Because we just had a conversation about what do you say to people at this time of year? Merry Christmas versus Happy Holidays. But for, even for a lot of people say Merry Christmas, it's not a religious-based um, uh, type of uh, a greeting. It's, it's just Christmas is a secular holiday to them. It's what it is, it's what we're celebrating. And so I think that's why a lot of people don't get so upset uh, about using that term. But, but we are seeing these broad shifts in um, how people celebrate Christmas and, and whether they view it as a religious holiday or not. And I think this is indicative of a broader trend we see across the country of, of a shift towards a more secular country overall. Yeah, absolutely. I was a bit taken by the the increase in people who were unsure. I find that a bit odd in that I would think people would know if they're religious or not, or if they're celebrating it as a religious holiday or not. Yeah, I think it's, it may be that, um, you know, they, 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 they're not quite sure. Maybe if they're in transition from, you know, some that one that was based even, I think about my own, I'm 38. Growing up as a kid, you know, we went to church um, we did the, the, you know, the midnight mass. We were Catholic, we practiced, my parents practiced as Catholics and, and I look at my own life, um, and I'm much more secular than, than they were. And so there may be some Canadians out there who say they're unsure. Maybe it's, we didn't give them the option to say it's part Chris, part religious, part secular. And I think it's an indicative, again, of that transition that might be happening for many people in terms of what Christmas means and why they celebrate it. All right. So you also asked people about decorating. We like to decorate our homes. We do, and, and most people across the country who celebrate Christmas will decorate their homes, but again, it's down slightly from it was seven years ago. Um, the other question we asked was, um, you know, what are you going to have for Christmas dinner? What are you going to make? And while turkey uh, continues to be the, the dominant protein choice for Canadians, it's down. Um, and interestingly, chicken is up. So we're going to have poultry. Most Canadians are going to have some form of poultry, but younger Canadians... Um, you know, for whatever reason, I don't, we didn't ask why, um, we see this shift over the last seven years away from Turkey towards chicken. Um, and about 4% of us across the country will have some kind of vegetarian meal. It won't be, there won't be any animal protein on that table. Which I don't, were you surprised at all by that? It is it's such a low number for the vegetarian option. Um, it, it, it aligns with other research we've done. Um, about 4% of Canadians are vegan, um, Across the country, about seven percent are vegetarian. I think the fact that only, that only four say there won't be meat at all is is indicative that even if you're vegetarian, you might still prepare some meat because other people in your family might eat, uh, you know, turkey or chicken. But there are four percent, a very small minority, um, and very similar to last uh, time we did this survey, who say there will not be any meat on on their uh, Christmas dinner table. All right. And let's talk about spending, because that's always, uh, we were chatting about this on the show earlier as well, and that's always a big issue. And we hear about, in some cases, people scaling back, uh, people spending more. And you asked uh, people uh, how much they spent on gifts this year. Yeah, and we find similar numbers from from, from 2012. People indicate that, you know, very few are going to say they're spending more this year than last year. Um, Far more say they're actually going to reduce the amount they spend then then increase it but most people say it's about the same as last year interestingly you know when we compare today versus 2012 coming out of the recession 
actually the number of people who said they're going to spend less is down. So I think people are feeling um, perhaps it's an indication of, you know, the, the strength of the economy. And there's some regional dynamics to that, certainly out in Vancouver and B.C., people feeling more optimistic about the economy, that they're, they're more likely going to spend than, if, for example, you're in Alberta or Atlantic Canada. Um, but, but what's also interesting is, not, is how they're going to spend this money. And we ask people, you know, when you think about your Christmas shopping this year, uh, what, about what percent do you think you're going to do online shopping? Um, and we find it the country's pretty divided. About half say uh, they're spending 50% or more of their shopping online, and about half say they're doing you know, less than half um, or none of their shopping online. And the interesting, as not surprising, the generational divide on that question, I think is really interesting. Younger Canadians are more likely to be buying more of their presents um, online and older Canadians more likely to be buying less um, and a sizable number buying uh, offline completely. So again, an interesting dynamic that, you know, we use, we're using Christmas as our case study, but I think it's indicative of the, the trends in shopping behavior and the, and the, how much sales Amazon uh, is likely doing uh, in the lead up to Christmas these days. And I found even with that one, uh, like you said, the younger generations, uh, millennials in particular, I thought the 51% was even a bit low. I expected that the online shopping might have even been higher. Yeah, I think think it's indicative that, you know, we're doing probably the bulk of our shopping online, but there's some of us who, I mean, there were very few millennials who said, I'm doing no online shopping. Um, But I also think there's a, a streak in our consciousness that, that recognizes that, and we've been hearing this message more and more, we should be supporting our local businesses. We should be going to the bricks and mortar stores that, that if we do all our shopping online, well, then we're not going to have any main streets left and the malls are all going to shut down. So I do think there's a, um, you know, an, an instinct to do it. There's also, I think the fact that it's, it's, it's still hard, although Amazon might deliver in, in a day or 24 hours, it's hard to do last minute mm-hmm. shopping online. And so you, if you're like me and you probably have a few left gifts to do over the next few days, just getting into that mall or into a few of those stores is, is probably going to um, be required. And, and Amazon or any online retailer won't, won't be able to, to solve my last-minute shopping problems. Absolutely. Uh, we've only got about 20 seconds. Uh, interesting, though, my nephew asked me this question yesterday. I said, yes, Die Hard is a Christmas movie. Uh, we are divided on this. It is. Uh, I say it's the most the controversial discussion to happen at Christmas <laughs> dinners this year in my office as well. So we, 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 we put it out there, ask Canadians, is Die Hard a Christmas movie? Uh, 25% of the country says yes, 55% says no, and the rest are unsure. Um, a slight gap between men and women. Interestingly, those in Generation X are the most likely to believe that it is. This is a Gen X movie. Um, and and so the the nose win, but I you know any any time someone says yes, they 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 question the results of the survey. So um, <laughs> all right, we'll see we'll see if that evolves over time. <laughs> we will see, David. Thank you so much.